Amen, beloved. My name is Chad, and I'm one of the pastors here. It's just a, what an honor to welcome you. Is everybody happy? I want to go on record that I am a Jesus guy. There's so many ways that the church kills itself by slandering each other who have different opinions and different theological streams and they're this and they're that, but whatever people want to peg me as, I don't really care as long as I say after the comma that he is a Jesus guy, that he loves... He loves Jesus. Um, In light of that terrible introduction, (laughs) um, we're finishing the book of Ephesians, and we all said amen. Woo! You guys aren't that excited. I am, okay? It's been like, it's been 18 weeks or whatever. Um, I I say that intro to say this. This passage that I'm going to be looking at, that we're going to be looking at, is very controversial about marriage about parenting, slaves, or sort of a loose modern-day equivalent, uh, employers and employees. And I was in San Diego this week, and I was working on my master's degree, and, and on my six-and-a-half-hour drive, I strike the tape. I was both reading articles and listening to like five different sermons from every end of the theological spectrum about what is God's vision for husband and wife roles. And I just want you to know that this is a complicated and complex passage, if we can all just agree and say amen. Um, But the beautiful thing is, as we dive into the scripture, our passage in Ephesians 5, starting with verse 21, is preceded by God's charge through Paul, the missionary church planter, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Let me, uh, let me explain to you why that is a big, huge amen. When I was in San Diego, my car died four or five times. And I don't have AAA, I'm cheap. But I'm learning sometimes being cheap ain't all that what it's cut out to be. <laughs> So my car dies in a big, beautiful city, different places, and apparently no one in the city has jumper cables. And so after I have to go run and rummage around town trying to find a jumper person, I would hook up the cables to my dead battery and the other end to their charge battery. And did you know it? You can have the best Bentley Mercedes 17 series, but if you got a dead battery, it ain't work. It's not going to work. And I want you to know that everything in the kingdom, everything about the journey of following Jesus, everything Jesus models for us and calls us into, everything the scriptures describe as God's vision for human flourishing and relationships the way they're to function, Guys, he wants to fill us with the energy, the power, the strength necessary to run as he designed us to run. So as we talk about these things like marriage and singleness and parenting and employer-employee relationships, 
May we not forget that before our passage, we are invited into an endless pursuit of being filled with the power source that enables us to live out our new identity in Christ. Can we all just say amen to that? Additionally, what we've been talking about for 18 weeks is that because of Jesus, everyone say because of Jesus, we are now invited to view all of life through the, the Christocentric or the Christological lens. That's the big fancy word, which is to say, because I'm following Jesus and he is my Lord, my master, my king, every single thing in my life, interpersonally, relationally, economically, every single thing, because I am in Christ, we're now invited to view those things in light of who Christ is, what he's done, and what he's promised to do. So, not only are we filled with divine power through the Holy Spirit, that we're then invited to view every single thing in light of who Jesus is, what he's done, and what he's promised to do. Those are the ground rules. How many know that if we would just buy into that simple framework, a lot of our arguing, bickering, frustration might just fall by the side? Because if it's not found and experienced and expressed in Jesus Christ, it is not good theology. Let me say that again. Unless it is not found, experienced, or expressed through the person and work of Jesus Christ, it is not worth listening to. Say this with me. Jesus Christ is perfect theology. One more time. Jesus Christ is perfect theology. So as we dive into this passage, think of me and my dead battery. Think of you and I, apart from us being connected to the power source, how helpless we would be. But thank God in Jesus Christ, we have direct access to the power source. Amen. And then thank glasses. Everything, because I'm a Christ follower, I'm invited to view that thing, that person, that relationship, that social interaction structure, I'm to view it through Jesus Christ. Wow. So as we dive into our passage, I want to say a few ground rules. We're going to talk about marriage and submission and heads and... Jesus and dying and fathers and mothers. and Number one, I want to just say this because I've been in the church my whole life. I want to say, if you're not married today, that singleness is not a disease you need to be cured of. Come on, somebody. If you've been in the church world, it's usually geared, here's the marriage, and then here's, and then all y'all crazies who aren't married, you have a disease that you need to be healed of. And I want you to know, again, if I view all of life through Jesus, Jesus was a single man. That should be all we need to say to affirm a deep and robust theology of singleness. Amen? The Apostle Paul, single. He only wrote 13 letters of the New Testament, church planter over all the known continents of his day. Not a bad... And both Paul and Jesus, some of the two main voices of our entire New Testament, both affirm that there are some who are called to live out the single calling for the sake of the kingdom of God. So the ground rules is singleness is not something to be cured. We all said amen. So many single people, it's on blogs, it's books, they don't feel like they have a place to belong in the family because it's so either you're married or you're not, and if you're not, what's wrong with you? 
And I want to say as your pastor, I affirm the call to singleness, and I also affirm the desire, if you're single, to be married. Amen. Amen? So first of all, we talk about marriage, and you're like, I'm single, or I'm, that's not me. It doesn't apply to me. No, it does apply to you. It does apply to you. Second, I want to affirm, in light of all of the theological spectrums about marriage and roles within marriage, the universal equality between the races and the sexes. Male and female were both charged in Genesis 1 and 2 to rule and subdue, to fill the earth, and to be fruitful and multiply with God at the center of their relationship together. Now, this equality does not mean that each male and female don't have dynamic roles to play within the vision that God has for his world. How many know he gave us gender for a reason? That there are roles, God-given male roles and female roles to play. And at the heart of these distinctions, there is a declaration of equality, of value, infinite dignity, worth, and authority. Do you hear me? Equality. And yet, distinction. And aren't you glad for that distinction? Third, this is a... I'm just getting all the hard stuff out of the way at the beginning. <laughs> just because God's design for human flourishing hasn't been upheld in our cultural moment, or by the church for that matter, doesn't mean we should go about designing our own versions of what we think is best for human flourishing. Just because, well, man and woman, and oh, but well, I submit, and I'm going to get to the passage in a minute, why well, that really panned out really well. Beloved, we cannot afford to throw out God's design because of the sinfulness of humanity. We can't do it. Therefore, I want to affirm the historical, orthodox, for thousands of years, Christian the vision for flourishing between a man and a woman is that God created marriage to be a lifelong covenant between one natural-born man and one natural-born woman. The Bible does not view certain sins, you can make the argument about 1 Corinthians chapter 3 or 1 Corinthians 6, but all sin outside of this covenantal marriage, all sexual sin, all sex outside of marriage is sin, is what I'm trying to say. Outside of marriage. It's God's design. We are not designed to attach ourselves and to become one in flesh and then to detach and to go to the next person and the next person and the next person. That has wreaked havoc on our hearts, on our souls, on our emotions, on our ability to relate to others, our ability to relate to ourselves, and most importantly, our ability to relate to God. It's not his design. God desires all males and females to flourish and to express, this is um, taken, there's an amazing movement right now in light of the, the just LGBTQ and the church has been, there's just, I've just been researching, okay? There's been so much damage, pain, suffering done from the church to those who are journeying through what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be them, what they view as themselves? And there's an amazing resource called centerforfaith.com that is leading the charge from a Christian perspective. No one was writing that down, but it's a great website. You should write it down. Centerforfaith.com, where they're leading the charge to have a conversation with people who have different views, but they're not 
they're holding up a historic Orthodox Christian vision for human flourishing. All forms, let me say that again, all forms of abuse, dehumanization, slander, oppression toward any fellow human is an affront against God's sacred image that has been stamped upon all people. Come on, let me say that again. All forms of abuse or mockery or slander or dehumanization, oppression towards fellow humans is an affront to God himself. Because every human bears the mark of God's image stamped within them. Oh my gosh, that's only page one. Hurry up. I'm not preaching loud. I'm very, very calm. Fourth, I want to say this with all humility and tenderness. As we talk about this passage, if you've come from a broken marriage, an abusive situation, a failed covenant, or you're currently in the balance, I want you to know your story is not over. I want you to know that we serve a God of infinite love, mercy, and grace. You hear me? A God who, if he designed it, he can empower it to flourish. But we serve a God who takes into account human volition. God is a God who's looking to partner with humanity for his purposes to come forth. And if there is not a willingness, as we'll get to in our passage, to partner with God's agenda and God's vision for flourishing... God does not just turn a blind eye to that. No, someone needs to hear that. And I want you to know that your story is not over, that you are infinitely valued by God. All of us are a work in progress. Come on, turn to your neighbor and say, you are a piece of work. And even though, listen, you may be here and any of these things that I've said just by way of introduction, grounded upon Scripture and the person and work of Jesus, you may already be like, I don't have ears to hear what you have anything else to say. That's fine. I love you. But I want you to, I want you to hear this. Jesus, God's definitive word that he has spoken over the world is the word of his son, Jesus Christ. And that word... That word is a word of forgiveness, freedom, reconciliation, and restoration. So no matter where you're at this morning, on your journey, the good, the bad, and the ugly, God still speaks the word of his son over you. And what we have learned by journeying these 17 or 18 or 50 million weeks from the book of Ephesians is that God through Jesus Christ is remaking humanity from the inside out. God through Jesus Christ, listen, it's not like the flood where he looked at human wickedness and sinfulness and said, oh, let's just send the rains. God has bound himself to humanity through the sending of his son, Jesus Christ, becoming fully one of us so that no matter how bent or marred or, or 
muddy the waters of our identity, of our vision of what it means to flourish, Jesus Christ is God's remedy to the healing of the deep wounds, sins, and struggles of humanity. Man, this is good. I'm happy. And through this new humanity, God wants to redeem and reveal himself to the whole world. This passage this morning is very much a word to Christians. How many know we get into a world of trouble when we hold non-Christians to standards that Christians barely hold up? Are you hearing me? You should act this way. You should be this way. Before we get into any of the implications of what anyone should be like, we have to ask the question, is Jesus Lord of your life or not? This doesn't mean we fudge or blur the lines between God's vision for human flourishing and human relationships and interactions, but it does mean that in our public posture, we are deeply humble and more concerned with faithfully bearing witness to the demands of Jesus Christ than throwing those demands on those who don't even know them yet. It's good preaching. We've got some repenting to do. I've got some repenting to do. If you're with me, say amen. Amen. So many of the uprisings of the last century or so are because we as the church have not offered a viable and life-giving alternative to defining right and wrong on our own terms. That is sobering, but I submit it is true. Said one thing, lived another. But how many are thankful today we are confronted with the God of grace and mercy to offer us another way forward, the way of his love and the way of his truth. God wants us to have something tangible in our shared practice of relationships and our faithful witness to show the world the brilliance and the wisdom of God's idea of what it means to be fully his, to thrive as his image bearers. And I want you to know that because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, everything has changed. This is a very 30-second summary of the whole book. The whole universe has changed because of Jesus and the cross. The individual has been changed The Jew and Gentile hostility has been changed. Your sinful bent on yourself and bent on destruction self has been changed through the gospel. The entire Christian community has been transformed and and, and, and empowered because of the gospel. Husbands and wives' relationships are changed. Parents and children, masters and slaves, employers and employees, everything changes through the good news of Jesus Christ. And because of the good news of Jesus, every relationship is now on a categorically different plane because as Christ followers, we acknowledge the lordship and governance of Jesus over our lives. And that is a good thing. And I want you to know that the overarching, overriding, predominant stream that pushes the Christian movement forward is the stream of the love of God revealed in the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. Back to the lenses. 
This is why Paul prays, for this reason I kneel before the Father from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in Love may have power together with all of God's people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses understanding, all understanding. The overarching force that pushes Christianity forward, the mission of the church is the force, the force of God's love revealed through Jesus Christ. Beloved, this will change the game if we'll let it change the game. And in this call to follow Jesus Christ, in our cultural moment, we are called to put off our old way of life so that we can welcome a new life now shaped and oriented around Jesus. This is basic. But we've lost sight of so many of the basics. If you agree, say amen. Loving God, loving people as yourself, basic, but we know progress is not made by learning all of the extras, but by submitting to and mastering the simple basics of what it means to be a Christ follower. I just agreed to coach freshman basketball at Pioneer Valley. What? Um, for multiple reasons. I, I, uh, I, I want to meet kids. I want to meet families. I want to engage. Um, you know, I like basketball. I was pretty good at it. Pretty good mind uh, on the court. But my main agreement to do this after school is because we are in an epidemic of fatherlessness in this generation, of having any positive role models, male or female, to look up to. But what I understand about basketball is there are teams who have one or two superstars, and then there are teams that kind of have decent players, but they're great at fundamentals. Do you know who nine times out of 10, not including the NBA, usually wins? Those who've got the fundamentals, the basics. So, we've been charged through Ephesians, you can check out our podcast, to walk in unity in light of the gospel, to walk in holiness, in love, in the light, and in wisdom. How many would say those five descriptors are a lifelong pursuit? (laughs) That's why two weeks ago, the sermon title was, Become What You Are. (laughs) a whole life pursuing who we are. So at the micro, macro level, this is true. But at the end of our letter, finally, Paul zooms in to the relationships that most of us would hold nearest and dearest. Aren't you glad we don't serve a God who's just interested in the the big out there peripheral, but he wants to infuse his grace and love where we need it the most, and I would argue in the home. Come on, somebody. In the home. Paul has just got done describing in Ephesians 5 
a sort of worship gathering. Did you know that most churches, for hundreds of years after Jesus' death and resurrection, they met in homes, so it would make sense that directions about the worship service would flow right into directions about a flourishing kingdom home. Because how many know it's one thing to have your friends over for Sunday dinner or Monday night football. It's a whole other thing that after you get done worshiping and taking Eucharist and you hear the word that your house is a mess because you've not submitted your household to the lordship of Jesus. You just want to do a couple songs and a couple sermons. So Paul, in his brilliance, after he talks about what is supposed to happen in the gathering of the saints, he says, in other words, when the chord is done, when the amen is spoken, the worship service is actually just beginning. When you leave the corporate gathering and you enter into your home or into your workplace or into your relationship with your, parent, your kids or your parents or your grandkids or your friends, that is where worship is. You're invited into a deeper, more dynamic realm of worship than just see you once a week and I can put my best foot forward. Did you know God sees all of it and he counts all of it as worship when it's done unto him? So Paul wants the worship service to never end where we flow right into our homes from the public gathering. God wants worship and Jesus Christ to be at the center of every relationship we have. We don't just need the Holy Spirit when we gather in here, this big, beautiful building week in and week out. We need the Holy Spirit to fill us when we go home. <laughs> Oh, man. Whoa. We do. Don't care what you say. I got three kids, soon to be four, and a wife who's perfect, obviously, but sometimes I need the Holy Spirit's help to be God's ideal husband to my wife, father to my sons and my daughter. Richard Foster says this, the most radical social teaching of Jesus was his total reversal of the contemporary notion of greatness. Leadership is found in becoming the servant of all. Power is discovered through submission. Christ not only died a cross death, he lived a cross life. And Jesus calls every single one of his fathers followers, male and female, to live a cross life. He says it in the Gospel of Mark. If anyone would come after me, you must first deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. The cross life is a life of voluntary submission. We could just end right there, and it would be as controversial as anything. Because it's all about me and my rights and my agenda and my preferences. Did you know that Jesus Christ is the Lord who says, give me that so I can give you what the life you could never get apart from me. Submit to me. Acknowledge my lordship and my wisdom for life. And you'll experience life as I designed it. So Paul starts in Ephesians 5.21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Did you know that the predominant 
culture of those who take seriously the person and work of Jesus Christ is a culture not of puffed out chest and pride and elbow knocking to get our place, but one of humble submission so that the needs of our brothers or sisters are elevated above our own. This is not hippie, 1960 flower, whatever, everything's good, dude. This is a submission rooted in the sacrificial, self-emptying love of Jesus. You don't need the Holy Spirit to just welcome and be cool. You need the Holy Spirit to submit to your brother or sister who's not worthy of it. Paul sets this framework for families by saying to every Jesus follower, submit to each other out of reverence for Jesus Christ. How many know right here, submission is not age or gender specific. Men, women, girls, boys are called to mutually submit to God and to each other because of the Christ we confess. He goes on. Wives, verse 22, submit yourselves to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. First of all, we want to say this. We want to acknowledge through women's suffrage, we want to acknowledge through this that this passage, I want to say as an exegete, as someone who reads and studies and then prays and says, God, okay, we want to speak truth that is life-giving and that honors your heart. We have to say that this verse has been cut and pasted out of context for far too long from males towards females, if we could all agree, say amen. Paul is not saying women are inferior to men. Paul is not saying that every woman should submit to every man. He just got done saying every Christian should submit to every Christian. Paul is saying that wives are to submit to their husbands. Did you know how much pain has happened in the workplace and so many cultural streams and ways because we bought into this idea of hierarchy, hierarchy in the sexes, but that does not exist in God's vision. I didn't say that men don't have certain roles to fill in women. I didn't say that part. I said, but this verse is not a cherry-picked verse. It says women are somehow inferior to God. This is a verse that says within the covenant of marriage with Christ at the center, wives are invited to submit, commanded to submit to their husbands. Did you know that being commanded to submit to one man is different than a bunch of men saying every woman is supposed to submit to every man? No one's saying amen. I don't know. This isn't that controversial. This submission is to be carried out voluntarily. Not by a husband or a brute or a beast in the home breaking the human will so that you can have a submissive servant in the house. Beloved, if that's happened to you, that is not the heart of Jesus Christ. If you're a woman in this place and your husband or a male figure in your life quoted this out of context so that he could turn you into something he wanted you, he did not do it out of the authority of God. That was his own sinfulness. Submission does not mean inferior. Say that with me. Submission does not mean inferior. How do I know that? Let's go to Jesus Christ. Remember the lenses where we were never supposed to take off. Jesus Christ is fully equal, we would agree, 
to the Father. If you agree, say amen. Basic Christian orthodoxy. And yet Jesus Christ submitted himself to the will and the purpose of his Father. If you agree, say amen. So does Jesus' submission to his Father's will mean that Jesus is in any way inferior to the one he bears the image of? No. So submission is not a dirty word that this, that this wing or that wing or any person or movement can take out of context and say, oh, how archaic those Christians. Baloney. Submission does not mean inferiority. Men and women are equal, but God's vision for the household for human flourishing is not a brute beast demanding his way, as we're getting ready to see. Husbands, you're getting ready to get it. <laughs> I'm sorry. You think submit. This idea of submission really is this idea of honoring or respecting or esteeming. Can I just tell you as a husband and as a man, nothing gets me going in a good way than when my wife looks to me and defers to my leadership, not because I'm a brute beast, but because I'm seeking God's face for the sake of my family and for my kids. And when she comes alongside, not in some subordinate or inferior way, but says, honey, I'm with you, I'm for you, I'm beside you, but I'm trusting God's leadership on your life as you lead us, nothing as a husband makes me come alive more. And when that happens, I don't turn around. It doesn't fuel this place in me that says, that's right, woman. <laughs> Are you kidding me? It fuels and fosters a desire. Man, if she's going to look to me, first of all, I'm going to live my life on my face before the one I'm following. And also, I want to go low and serve her so that she can reach her potential. This is God's vision, God's dream for the, for the Christian household. Beloved, I just read a study that was done in 1994 from Switzerland. It is so sobering. Oh, it's so sobering that I'm going to save it. <laughs> Within the context of marriage, men and women, equal in the eyes of God. Everyone say equal. But God in his infinite wisdom says, trust me, as the wife submits to their, her husband, she's not just doing it to him. She's submitting to Jesus Christ himself, all within the framework of mutual submission. Are you tracking with me? To honor, to respect, to defer. Husbands, love your wives. Here you go, men. You thought you got your pass. Love your wives just as you feel like it on a given day. Whenever, you, whenever she... Whenever she deserves it. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. See, this verse has been hijacked by so many agendas out there. Oh, archaic Christians, and oh, they're submitting their love. Yes, so much has been done to the detriment of both woman and male. But beloved, what flows from Paul's heart and from the heart of the Father is husbands, as your wives defer to you and honor you and revere and respect you because they're revering and respecting Jesus and his leadership and lordship over the church, that as you do that, you are called not to be this authoritarian, law-giving, self-asserting, self-centered, me-focused person. You're to lay down your life to lift up your wife and your family. There is no place in marriage or any other relationship for a relationship that demeans or diminishes the personhood and identity of another person. 
not in the kingdom and not in any kingdom, even though it's present and prevalent too often. You husbands are called to love your wives. Listen, that word love is agape, which means not just to love when you feel like it. Come on, how many know that is killing us to love when we feel like it? Agape means to subordinate one's own interests, pleasures, and personal benefit for the sake of someone else. So if anyone can take this verse and say, oh, archaic, women submit. Yeah, you're right. Husbands are just supposed to lay down their preferences, their rights, and everything to lift up their wife. Come on, somebody. This is not some nailed over and dominant. This is God's vision for a family that will flourish if we'll take the gospel serious. Husbands, love your wives Lead your wives. Lead them in the posture of humble submission to Jesus. Who gave, Jesus gave himself. Why did Jesus do it? To make the church her holy. Cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. And to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish. But holy and blameless. In this same way. Someone say same way. Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. You see what Paul's doing. Wives, as you submit to your husbands, you're doing it to the Lord. So it's really as unto him. Husbands, even though I've called you to be the head, to be the leader in your home, however the Spirit works that out within the framework of your marriage, you guys get to work that out. But as you do that, you loving your wife with the self-emptying, self-subordinating, sacrificial love of Jesus, as you do that, you're actually loving me. You see what Paul's doing. How many know that person you say I do to, listen, there is a bigger I do behind that I do. And it's an I do to honor that person as the image bearer that they are. And as you grow in holiness, as you grow in tenderness and gentleness and humility and love, you're growing. God's using that person called your spouse so that when he appears, you'll be more like him, Jesus, than you would have if you hadn't submitted to the relationship and to God's idea for flourishing in marriage. Men, in Paul's day and in many parts of the world still, they were the patriarchs. They could dominate and treat their wives in Paul's context in the first century. However they wanted, they could walk in infidelity without consequences. In Greco-Roman society, wives had obligations to their husbands, but not vice versa. So what Paul is doing here through the gospel is saying it's a new day. Women are not property. Women are not to be treated with contempt or judgment or belittlement. You are to lay your life down, husband, for your wife's sake. For a man to love his wife as himself is revolutionary. So anyone who takes this verse in some authoritative way, they are missing the entire point of the gospel. Paul goes on, after all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for it just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. To care for, to nurture, to call out the greatness and destiny and identity of the one you've said I do to. Did you know there's not a greater honor within marriage than to be the cheerleader of your spouse, not the dominator? It's quiet. 
The husband's called to love and to nurture and to cherish. So many of us men have plenty of fodder now to repent over. Can I get an amen? Where we've sought to be the coach instead of the cheerleader. I'm not saying, I'm not, men, you're not supposed to, no, 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 no. How many know there is a way to lead that is life-giving and then there is a way to lead that is suffocating? And the kind of leadership that is supposed to mark us as husbands, future husbands, fathers, is a kind of leadership that looks like a towel and a basin going low and washing feet. We don't get to pick what kind of leadership God calls us to give in our homes if we take Jesus serious. It is a servant leadership because it's a Christ's leadership. The same way Christ loves the church compassionately, lovingly, sacrificially, Jesus laid down his life for the church. Husbands are called to give themselves unreservedly for their wives and their kids. I listened to an amazing, uh, uh, amazing quote recently by a guy named Matt Chandler, and it convicted me, and I've actually tried to obey it. This segues into our next part. He says this, Matt Chandler, pastor of a really big church in Texas. He said, husbands, quit going to bed refreshed. You don't know what that means. Here's what it means. So many of us will go work a nine to five, and I'm not saying there's plenty, there's no Bible verse that says women can't go to work. I'm just saying my context, where I'm gone working all day, and I come home, and I think I get to check out, turn on the video, or whatever. Matt Chandler, I heard the quote brilliantly, he says, go to bed exhausted. How many know that's a hard one to live up to, but it is a good standard, in my opinion. Go to bed exhausted. You get done with your mind, your will, your emotions. You're pouring into your workplace, to money, to providing, and all of that is a God-given amazing thing. But don't come home and get rested so that when you go to bed, you're rested. Keep pouring out for the sake of your marriage and for the sake of your kids if you have them. I don't know, it didn't go over very well. I thought it was a good quote. It challenged the heck out of me. I come home and I check out, and Matt Chandler, blame him. He's a pastor. I didn't come up with it. For this reason, we're almost done. A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will be one, become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Because of this passage, Jesus has put the vision for marriage, he's knocked it out of the stratosphere of being merely a cultural or political battle. He's saying that marriage is a look into God's cosmic redemptive purposes in Jesus Christ being fulfilled on the earth. He's taking it from a quabble and an opinion and a political soundbite, and he's saying, you don't understand. As old as the first covenant I've made between man and woman, as ancient as that promise and my vision for human flourishing, as ancient as that is, and did you know the Bible begins with the marriage and it ends with the marriage? God wants to show through a Christ-exalting, Jesus-centered marriage the beauty of redemption as a real life play and parable. To love your wife as yourself and your husband. To wife must respect your husband. 
All right. Last parts, because I have to finish Ephesians today. <laughs> so we're starting a new series next week. Just take a deep breath. I literally, this is it. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy how long? Long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children or parents. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Here's my little commentary. Don't suppress, beat down, badger, and constantly paint a picture for your sons and your daughters in which they never live up or they never succeed or they never meet your standards. Did you know that we are entrusted with little image bearers to represent God and his life-giving authority to them? God has given us the ability, if you have parents or grandparents or whatever, or you're working on kids or you have friends or whatever, within the context of marriage and family, we are meant to be gardeners that till up the unbridled potential of our, not only our spouses, but our sons and our daughters, and to sow seeds of life and hope, training and instruction, so that when the way of Jesus is received in the heart, the way of Jesus grows through their life as we train and instruct them in life-giving ways. Dads, the first lesson you will teach and train your kids is how you treat your spouse. It is not about just a big, amazing curriculum on parenting or, or even a great catechism or even if you did Bible study every day at the dinner table. But if at the end of the day they don't see a living parable of dad sacrificial loving his wife, beloved, your words will fall on soil that will be mixed at best, hard at worst. By sacrificially loving and submitting to one another, our children will be raised in a context where the way of Jesus will be utterly compelling and attractive when it's rooted in real-time relationship. Here's the study that I said in Switzerland, 1994, by by a guy named Robbie Lowe between the connection between church-going habits of fathers and mothers and the effect on their children when they grow. Here's the findings. This is famous. Maybe you've heard it, but I'm almost done. If a father does not go to church, no matter how faithful his wife's devotions, only one child out of 50, what are those odds? One out of 50, will become a regular worshiper. If a father does go regular, regardless of the practice of the mother, between two-thirds or three-quarters of children will go to church when they grow up. 75%. This is not, I didn't make this up. If a father goes but irregularly to church, regardless of his wife's devotion, between half and two-thirds of their children will find themselves going to church regularly. What does this mean? It means as much as I've been saying about equality and every ounce of it I mean with all of my heart, definitively, God has called men to a kind of leadership that we cannot buck. A kind of leadership spiritually that for far too long has been relegated to someone else, whether it's the pastor or the spouse or the youth Beloved, all of us are a work in progress. None of us does this well. Can we just all agree and say amen? But today is a new day to sign up again to walk in God's wisdom and God's ways for our households. 
The results are shocking. And they're about as politically incorrect as possible. But they confirm, quote, what psychologists, criminologists, educationalists, traditional Christians know. You cannot buck the biology of the creator's influence and order. Fathers, you are called to influence and lead your families. Again, from everything we've said, not in a domineering authoritative, but in a self-emptying, sacrificial, loving way, God has designed it that way. And no matter how passe or culturally irrelevant it may seem, beloved, he is calling us, male and female, to fulfill and explore our God-given roles together in a posture of submission and humility infused with the power of the Holy Spirit. It may be out of date or seemingly irrelevant, but there's no passing the buck. Raise up your kiddos, your grandkids, in the way of the Lord. And finally, slaves, obey your masters with respect and fear. Again, slavery, I don't have time. It's not condoning slavery. It was a regular part of the fabric of first century life. Employer, employee. Look at this. He closes with this. Obey your masters or employers with respect and sincerity of heart and fear, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, do the will of God from your heart. Come on, that's good advice. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward every person for whatever good they do, whether they're slave or free. And unless you're like, well, that really, that's a bummer if I'm an employer or employee. I have to work hard all the time. (laughs) Why? Because just as when the wife submits to the husband, she's doing it to Jesus. As the wife lays down his life for his wife, he's doing it to Jesus. And as parents raise and nurture and train and instruct their children, Jesus said the kingdom belongs to them, so he's really doing it to Christ. And just as employees who work hard, not just to win the favor of their bosses when they're looking, but with all of their heart all the time, who are they doing it for? Are you getting the picture? If you're in Christ, it's all through a Christ lens. And then he ends, very controversial, Many masters and slaves became Christians in the first century. Look what he says. Masters or employers, treat your slaves in the same way. Revolutionary. Don't threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. And there, let me say it, there is no favoritism with him. Do you see that? Every relationship in our homes, in our marriages, in our friendships, in our sons, in our daughters, in our workplace has been radically transformed through the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'll close with three questions. What does your work ethic at your work communicate to your boss about your faith? What does your work ethic communicate if you're a Christ follower? Fathers, if you're married, what does the relationship with your wife communicate if you have children to your sons or your daughters? This is what this this passage invites us to explore. Employers, what does your practice communicate and how you run your business or your over these 
fellow workers, you have a place of authority, what does your leadership communicate to them about your faith? Jesus Christ is Lord of all. There is no favoritism with him. I'll close with this. Could you stand with me? Thank you for going on this journey with me. This is a journey. I... Is everyone okay? It says in Galatians 3, it's like a paradox. Because we see Jesus saying, everybody submit to everyone, but then he gives certain roles within those relationships. How many know? I guess submit everything, but yet within these submissions, there are still roles. And I want to say it clearly as your pastor. Equality, value, dignity, all of those are bedrock and foundational and central to God's idea of how flourishing relationships work. But within those relationships, there are still God-ordained and given roles. This is where it can be controversial, but you can't change the Bible to say what you want it to say, so it's a little bit, well, I like that better. I mean, when we do that, we step out of the grace that is available only when we submit to God's ways and his will. Look what he says here. Galatians 3, 28. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus our Lord. So if anyone gets out of here and takes a teaching and spins it off into some other realm that is not Christocentric, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't try to bring your relationships and your preferences and try to bend them around the ways of God. Bring all that you are and say, Jesus, work the gospel through my life. I'm not trying to fit you in. I want you to ravish me by your love so that I'm the man or the woman, the son or the daughter, the worker or the owner, the employed or the employer. I want to do it in a Christ-exalting way. I haven't got to talk about when people betray this covenant through abuse or neglect, domineering or domination. And I want you to know Jesus speaks clearly into those situations. You are not a doormat. Come on, somebody, say amen. You are not a, a punching bag to a bully. And this isn't just energized by the cultural moment of throw off all restraints. It's energized by the one who cares about the terms of the covenant being upheld. You got to hear me. And if you're in a situation of abuse or neglect in a marriage, listen, statistics are striking. Do not suffer in silence. Call a pastor. Call a friend. Bring someone into your journey because God is not okay with that. Did you hear me? I want to go on record. If you're in a situation and you hear this passage and you think, oh, that all sounds good in like a greenhouse environment, but I don't live in a Petri dish. I live with a sinner. I want you to know 
God's heart for you is for you to flourish no matter what your spouse or your father or your mother has ever said to you. I want you to hear this. When someone in their own brokenness or insecurity who's played an authority figure in your life was supposed to give you a context of compassion, of tenderness, of self-emptying sacrificial love, and they didn't, I want you to know that God in Christ invites you to come. No matter what has happened, your story is not over. There's grace for every human in this room. I suppose for insects and bugs too. (laughs) Is that clear? Say amen, Pastor Chad, or something. I want to make sure I'm biblically sound, but yet, guys, if you're in a covenant or relationship or even a work environment, you're like, Chaddy, how the heck does this work? Please come talk to us. Come talk to me, and we'll work it out together.